Amen. Well, as we continue our journey through John's Gospel, it's helpful to remember what has gone before us a little bit, so we have kind of an idea of where we're going. So, in that interest, I'm just going to recap a little bit of John chapter 10 for us before we jump into John chapter 11. The first half of John 10, Aaron proclaimed for us a couple weeks ago that Jesus is the entrance into eternal life. He's the door of the sheep. But he's also the trusted shepherd and guide and sanctifier as we live out the eternal life that he's given us. And last week, Chad, in the second half of John, pointed out for us that Jesus and his Father are one. They're a package deal. So you cannot be properly related to the Father without coming through the Son and believing Him to be who He says He is, and believing in the works of salvation that He has come to perform. And the ones who will always believe this are the sheep who know His voice, because He will make sure that His voice is always heard above all other noise. Well, this morning, little Christians, young theologians, this morning we're going to talk about death and life. We're going to talk about physical death and how Jesus will bring us back from the dead through the resurrection. But we're also going to talk about death and life in another sense, too. So be asking yourselves this question as you listen this morning. Ask yourself, what dead things in my heart does Jesus need to put to death And what fruits of his spirit, the kind that we read about in passages like Galatians 5, does Jesus want to bring to life in me? For adult Christians, this morning we will once again be reminded by Jesus that the gospel is not just about our entrance into life. It's also about a cycle of dying to sin that turns into having his life renewed in us day by day. It's about walking in a daily resurrection where the life first given to us is resurrected out of the tomb where our flesh loves to keep it so that we will learn to love what Jesus loves and to hate what he hates. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus given to us by his chosen apostle, John the Evangelist, chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it was he, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. 
After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning the brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. They may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him. Let him go. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you as people who continue to fight an irreconcilable war between the flesh and the spirit. Death versus life raging in us. We ask that your spirit of life would give light to our eyes and our hearts that we might understand your word. 
that it would resurrect and call forth the fruits that you want to bring forth in us. Give us this light. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, even though she is four years old, our daughter, Aubrey, always seems to be thinking about the future these days. And she's not just thinking about what she's going to be doing tomorrow, but seems to be thinking a lot about a lot of things that hopefully she won't even be thinking about actually doing until she's out of college. A couple days ago, she was having another conversation with us about what she wants to be and do when she grows up. Mom, I I think I know what I want to do. I want to be a teacher. Yep, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be, a teacher. Well, wait a second, wait. How about being a mommy? I want to be a mommy. But doesn't it hurt when babies come out? Maybe I'm going to adopt. I think that's what I'm going to do. I'll adopt. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, you know what, Mom? I've decided what I want to do when I grow up. I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to watch TV. (laughs) It's the words every father hopes to hear from the aspirations of his daughter. All you young men, young eligible men in the room, you got 20 years to start saving for a big screen television. But when you're young, whether you're as young as Aubrey or you're my age, when you think about the future, most likely you probably don't think a whole lot about death. You don't think much about the curse that we as humans have brought upon, not only ourselves, but all of God's creation, even though it reaches just as daily into our lives as food and water and oxygen. Just a few days ago, Aubrey's teacher at school had to miss a couple of days of teaching in order to console her family because her three-year-old nephew had accidentally shot himself in the head with a gun and died. And at the other end of the age spectrum, a week ago, we were in Oklahoma City visiting my granddad in hospice care He's separated from his home in central Illinois so that he can be closer to my parents because he's never probably going to get out of bed again without some kind of of assistance. And even as we walked the halls down to his room, you could smell death in the air. The smell of vomit and excrement and the cleaning carts that were lining the halls, mixing with the smell of of one layer of disinfectant laid upon another, the smell of dampness and mold trapped in the moist air coming from all the humidifiers. During my conversation with a man I have loved and respected all my life, whose body used to be filled with the strength and the vigor to support a farm during the Great Depression, only to take a break long enough to enter the United States Navy to fight German U-boats and Japanese kamikazes, this man looks up at me and he says, you know, John, I really never thought it was going to end like this. 
And this is the world that Jesus walks into. A world that must, to the very author of life himself, must have smelled like death at every turn. It's a world where those things which should be alive are very dead. While those things which ought to be put in a forever grave are walking around and ruling the atmosphere. It's like Haley Joel Osment in the movie The Sixth Sense. Everywhere Jesus goes, he sees dead people. And like many of the dead characters in the movie, the people Jesus walks by every day don't even know they're dead. And that's what makes this story the best news the world has ever heard. This entire account is a smaller picture of a greater picture yet coming. It's like going to a Little League game before purchasing World Series tickets or scribbling with chalk on your driveway before visiting the Louvre Museum in Paris. It's the story of a death that glorifies God only because it is a death that doesn't end the story, but only leads to a greater victory than merely staying alive in this world ever could. And this is what makes Jesus' comment in verse 4 so troubling and seemingly misleading to his disciples. He says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And it's common in a lot of contemporary Christian thought to think about physical death as a good thing. A release from our bodily prisons. Freed from the shackles of this earth to go live with Jesus forever. Floating on a cloud. Playing a harp. Transporting ourselves from one side of the universe to the other. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi after he's stricken down by Darth Vader in Star Wars. Becoming more powerful than you can possibly imagine, I think is what he says. We often see death as this wonderful mechanism that God has thought up to get us from point A on the earth here to point B where our real home is in heaven as disembodied spirits. But when Jesus speaks positively of Lazarus' death throughout this chapter, like in verse 4, in verses 14 and 15, this is not what he means. He who created human bodies, he who created us as body and soul unities, he who took on the fullness of humanity, taking on a human body and a human soul like we heard preached so many times over Advent, he who was bodily resurrected and will one day bodily resurrect us as we are about ready to observe repeatedly, in the Easter season before us, this one does not think so crassly and so negatively about our physical bodies. Indeed, this story, it only confirms the way the entire Bible treats death and and the human body throughout. Death is always the enemy. The last to be destroyed, in fact. And human bodies are always precious to God because we are not experiencing the fullness of being human without them. 
And while it is good to take comfort in knowing that our loved ones are not suffering anymore while their souls find rest in Jesus, it is a good thing to take comfort in that. We still dare not look to death as the deliverer. Rather, we come together at funerals like Martha and Mary and their friends to continue to mourn death as a great devourer. The great curse that still haunts us. It's like Lewis's Narnia where death makes things always winter and never Christmas. We rightfully grieve over it. But as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not grieve as those without hope. Why? Because death is somehow some sort of a blessing in disguise? No. We don't grieve as people without hope because of this story and what this story points towards. But this scriptural passage is giving us more than even the wonderful hope of bodily resurrection to come. Jesus knew ahead of time that Lazarus' death would ultimately lead to Lazarus' resurrection and lead to the glorification of the Son and of the Father. And while this is ultimately true for our future deaths as well, it's also true for the death of our sin now. While every death of every person, Christian or not, is a tragedy only redeemed by the promised resurrection that Jesus will bring, the death of every sin pattern and every evil thought and every evil motive and every deed is nothing but a heavenly celebration. The death of sin that God works in us is the only kind of death that he has not provided a resurrection for. Jesus' willingness to let Lazarus die is a promise that although we die under the curse for now, we will one day rise again. And in the same way, Jesus' willingness to let Lazarus die, in spite of the pain endured by by him, in spite of the, the pain endured by his family and by his loved ones and his friends, it's also a declaration of what Jesus is doing in our life as he kills our sin. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, and the Greek says, as a result, therefore, consequently, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. In other words, it was out of love that Jesus allowed them their sorrow the sorrow of great loss, so that they might witness the power of God to defeat even an enemy that speaks with such finality as death itself. In the same way, he calls us to trust him through the suffering, just as Martha does, knowing that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, promised to come into the world. And we trust him in this, not after he has performed his resurrection work in us, not after we get to see the benefits of the deathly suffering that we endure, but even as he relentlessly puts to death those things that he has already declared dead in us, even while he works just as tirelessly to resurrect 
living fruits of His Spirit in us. Martha's conversation with Jesus proves that this story is pointing to something more than the future resurrection of our bodies. Martha believed in the future resurrection. Daniel 12 and passages like that had already made that clear to her. But Jesus answers not just that he will be the resurrection and the life, but that he is right now, presently, the resurrection and the life. Verses 25 and 26 make it clear that Jesus has come to defeat both kinds of death. Both kinds that are really not two separate kinds, but different facets of the one holistic death brought upon us in the curse of Genesis 3. But just as death has reached deep into our humanity, killing our soul's life with God and others, and just as it has condemned our outer being, subjecting our bodies to the supreme perversion of being covered by the very earth, the very ground that we were supposed to rule over and tend and care for. God's answer to this awful curse is the person of Jesus. And he provides the holistic remedy for spiritual and physical death through the work of resurrection. As one commentator has said, Christian existence in Christ is life before death, but also life after death. And I think we should add, it is also life that reverses and defeats death. When commenting on the resurrection that Jesus speaks of in verses 25 and 26, John Calvin writes, Accordingly, they who believe in Christ, though they were formerly dead, begin to live. Because faith is a spiritual resurrection of the soul, and, so to speak, animates the soul itself that it might live to God. Christ is our life because He never permits the life which He has once bestowed to be lost, but preserves it to the end. For since flesh is so frail, what would become of men if after having once obtained life, they were afterwards left to themselves? The perpetuity of the life must therefore be founded on the power of Christ himself, that he may complete what he has begun. The reason why it's said that believers never die is that their souls, being born again of incorruptible seed, have Christ dwelling in them, from whom they derive perpetual vigor. So all of this causes causes me to ask, what would you kill in us, Jesus? And what would you resurrect in us, Jesus? I think we could all point to a long list of valid things. When Ellen and I were sitting on the couch in our living room talking a couple nights ago, lamenting the fact that what we see in us is a growing piece of death that needs to be put to death by Jesus, that I think we also share to a large extent as a church. And that is 
just a spirit of an incessant criticism. A critical spirit. I'm tired. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of being critical of everything and everyone. I'm tired of thinking that God's great gift to the world through me is the gift of criticizing their way of thinking, their parenting, their fashion styles, their eating habits, their spending habits, their driving, their worship styles. I'm tired of thinking that our primary job is to take a hammer and a chisel and to go to work on everybody else around me until they look more perfect, which coincidentally means looking a lot more like me. And if you think that what I'm saying is that we don't need to think carefully or critically about things, about some things, especially doctrine and teaching, and that we give up being spiritually filled in our criticism. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we have excelled, oftentimes I think, in elevating way too many of our opinions and preferences to a level that should only be accorded to gospel doctrine. We can often be found, I think, treating perfectionistic criticism like it's a fruit of the Spirit. Like it's one of the Ten Commandments. Like it's a summary of the law given to us by Jesus. Or like Paul sat down with his pen and spent all of 1 Corinthians 13 telling us how to do it. And what those scriptural passages all have in common, I think, help us know what Jesus would resurrect in us. A new St. Peter's. I think like the church in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus would resurrect love. Love that risks being hurt by caring so much. Love that risks by being willing to trust fallible people. Love that stops and is willing to see the perspective of others for a minute. Love that admits wrong and asks for forgiveness. Love that moves us to parent and shepherd those in our care with the love that Jesus has given us. Love that is willing to move out into the community and to love them before we're completely sure that we're going to do it perfectly. And when we decide to be critics rather than people of love, we begin to sound like the Jews of verses 35 and 36 instead of like Jesus who comforts Mary and Martha. For the Jews, Jesus either greatly empathizes with this grieving family while being powerless to do anything or he's morally questionable for not intervening in Lazarus' impending death. Either way, he's criticized. But Jesus is neither of these. Note his compassion in the midst of Martha and especially Mary's great pain. His intimate knowledge of all he's going to do with our pain. 
all the ways that he's going to use it and redeem it does not keep Jesus from identifying with our pain and suffering in the moment. He's able to be completely efficient, wasting nothing. He wastes nothing of our suffering, nothing of our loss, nothing of our mistakes and our sinful decisions, and he uses it all to his glory and all to our good so that there's nothing left over. There's no parts left on the ground unused in his redemptive reassembly work, and yet even in the perfect knowledge of how he's going to do all those things, he's able to be in the moment, and he's able to step into our pain, And he's able to comfort us with his loving presence. And the reason that he's able to do this goes back to what was said at the very beginning. This story is a preview of the great resurrection to come. Only a short time from the events here. Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection, it's shouted from this story. This, along with Jesus' identity as the Messiah and the Son of God, is what makes the truths contained in the rest of this story for us so possible. In the very act of going to resurrect his friend, Jesus was going to the place of his death. He had already been prepared for burial when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, had anointed his feet with an entire bottle of expensive perfume costing a year's wage. Because how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And more beautiful are the feet of the one who is the good news. Jesus died to the temptation to avoid what awaited him in Judea in order to give life to a dead man, only to turn around and die himself. Knowing that his resurrection would be the basis for every sin that he would kill in us. And the basis for every fruit that he would resurrect in us. Jesus knew very well what awaited not just Lazarus, but awaited him too. After all, Bethany, where Lazarus died, it's only two miles away from Jerusalem. And John tells us this to remind us again, that this whole story is preparation. It's a signpost pointing to what's coming. Jesus knew that this last trip into Judea and Jerusalem was the sealing of his own death warrant, just like he knew that waiting too long while Lazarus was sick was the sealing of Lazarus' death as well. So when his disciples raised the question as to why he would ever go back to Jerusalem, and when they asked why he would wait while Lazarus was still alive and able to be healed, his response is essentially the same. Verse 9, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And after the claims of John chapter 8 and John chapter 9 and the miracle of the healing of the man born blind, surely the message, it's not wasted, it's not lost here on them. I am the light of the world. I know what I'm doing. I can't be ambushed or blindsided by human schemes or unseen catastrophes. And if you follow me, you can be sure 
of following the one who is the light, even as I die, so that your sin might die, and even as I rise, so that the fruits of the Spirit might be continually brought forth in you. You, St. Peter's, he will resurrect us from death. And he is resurrecting us from death now. Jesus is joyfully and painfully allowing our sin to die in us. He's actively killing it himself. And yet he's calling forth the life he has given to us in the person of his spirit. He's displaying his fruits and he's setting us free. He is the relentless resurrector. And he's even chasing us when we run for our favorite tomb so that he can call out to us, Come out! Unbind him and let him go. Amen. Father, you are good to us. And you have been supremely good to us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Fathers, we read in the assurance of pardon this morning, would you, through the Lord Jesus, make us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all? Would you establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God? in holiness before the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Would you resurrect love in us now, love for one another and love for you, and love for those who don't know you, even while we wait for the fullness of resurrection to come at the end. We trust you to do these things, and we thank you for your promises to do them. We ask these things to you, Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Amen.